0: Great. Thanks again, Andrew, for for doing all that uh, for me. It's really been great to worship uh, and hear you worship and hear you sing. Uh, Really appreciate your talents. All right, we are kicking off our first sermon in the book of Psalms. We just ended the book of of Job. And so right off the bat, I'm going to talk about a pet peeve of mine that uh, all of you should be aware of when we talk about the book of Psalms, that when we are referring to the book, it is called the book of Psalms. When we talk about a specific psalm, we refer to it as Psalm 100, Psalm 27, not Psalms 27. That that's it's it's not plural, plural psalms of one, of 27, no. It's just one psalm, one psalm out of the book of Psalms, okay? Just throwing that out there. Um if you do that in my presence, I will call you out on it. Um just kidding. I wouldn't do that. Um, okay, there are different types of psalms, and we could we could spend a, a long time really diving into the complexity of the book of Psalms. In the sense of what kind of different psalms there are, there are lament psalms. That's by far the the most lament, just crying out to God. Uh, the one that we're going to be looking at uh, specifically today is penitential. Um, that um, that the, only the the penitent man shall pass. If you remember Raiders of the Lost, no, 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 sorry, 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 The Last Crusade, uh, when uh, Indiana Jones is trying to go get the Holy Grail. You have chosen wisely. Um, only the penitent man shall pass. Right? I'm I'm humbled. I'm I'm bowing low in this. Um, there are kingly prayers, there are uh, psalms of thanksgiving, and so um, I, I'm not going to really dig into that, it, at least today, maybe as we go forward in the future, if a psalm warrants that, we'll we'll for sure look into that. But I do want to highlight um, that this is Hebrew poetry. This is not English poetry where where we have rhyme and meter and all those different things um, and stanzas, and it's not, it's, it's all about um, a parallelism um and and repetition that when something is repeated and we're gonna see that in 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 the psalm that we're gonna be looking at today, that there's gonna be repetition over and over and over. Um and that is to help us really grasp uh the understanding and the weight behind what is being said. And so that is um Hebrew poetry and and, and parallelism. So this week we're we're gonna be looking at Psalm 130 which is actually a, a, a psalm uh, that we sing a lot, written by Martin Luther. We're going we're gonna to end with that. And, I, and I'm not going to lie, I actually picked this psalm because I thought, man, this is actually going to be an easy psalm. I picked it because it's just kind of been a heavy week, and I thought, kind of like what Amy was saying in her prayer, this has been a little, little heavy, and so the psalms can be so uplifting. And then I really started digging into this psalm, and it is, it is uplifting, but it's heavy. It's really, really heavy, Um, and so I um, really spent a lot of time this week looking at this and, um, and really just kind of titled this sermon, Who Can Stand Before Thee. Now, Psalms are not necessarily in chronological order. They they can range a, a large portion, I mean, like over a thousand years of, of, of history of church or Israelite history, and there's several different authors. So they're not necessarily that one is tied to the other and tied to the other, but this is a case where Psalm 129 is actually, it helps us with our understanding of Psalm 130. And so I want to read Psalm 129 first put it in a little bit of context, and then we're going to dive into Psalm 130. They're both very small. They're both eight uh, verses long. So Psalm 129 says this. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. They have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion or Jerusalem be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, The blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. That is a heavy and dark psalm. Right That from my childhood, I have been oppressed. That that the plowmen have plowed my back. And the furrows have been cut deep. And yet we get to Psalm 130. And the very first few words just say, out of the depths. And as I was looking at this and just the, the cry of anguish and agony and looking back to say, I've been greatly oppressed from my youth. It's not me. It's not. It's not me. I I have not been oppressed from my youth. Uh, I don't know what it's like to experience extreme poverty. No clue. I have no idea what it's like to have a a lack or maybe a a better word would be a, a deprivation of education. It was always readily available for me. I was never a victim of racial profiling ever, other than I can't jump. (laughs) I've never struggled with a mental disorder or depression or or major anxiety that just cripples me. It's not me. Not to say I'm perfect. I'm just very, very thankful. I'm privileged. And so I, I was getting into this psalm, and I was like, man, am I even qualified to preach on this psalm? And I was reminded of what um, Paul said last week, that when it comes to suffering, that it's not just a light switch, it's not just, oh, I'm suffering, you're not, leave me alone, you have no idea what it's like, but he talked about how it's this dimmer. And right now, I think in our spot, the fact that I'm at home, not with my friends who I I love and I miss, there is a, a sense of suffering there that I don't get to do the things that I used to be able to do because of sickness in the world. And so maybe I don't understand all of what other people go through in their life, but there is depths of suffering for myself. Out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. I cry out to you. Um, uh, Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon, um, Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the mid-1800s, early, sorry, late 1800s, wrote um, these two huge volumes on the treasury. It's called The Treasuries of David. Um, and he just kind of walks through the Psalms. And so I have a, a couple of quotes um, that I'm gonna be reading today, and, and they are a little bit long, and I apologize for that. But it's just so, it's so rich and it's so in-depth. He was an English Baptist preacher. And so I just want to read what he has to say about this first phrase of out of the depths, I cry to you, Lord. He says, this is the psalmist's statement and plea. He had never ceased to pray, even when brought to the lowest state. The depths usually silence all they engulf, but they could not close the mouth of the servant of the Lord. On the contrary, it was in the abyss itself that he cried unto Jehovah. Beneath the floods Prayer lived and struggled. Yea, above the roar of the billows rose the cry of faith. It little matters where we are if we can pray. But prayer is never more real and acceptable than when it rises out of the worst places. Deep places beget deep devotion. I love that phrase. Deep places spur on deep devotion. Depths of earnestness are stirred by depths of tribulation. Diamonds sparkle most amid the darkness, and more distressed we are, the more excellent is the faith which trusts bravely in the Lord, and therefore appeals to him and to him alone. Good men may be in the depths of temporal and spiritual trouble, but good men in such cases look only to their God, and they stir themselves up to be more instant and earnest in prayer than at other times. The depth of their distress moves the depths of their being. And from the bottom of their hearts, an exceeding great and bitter cry rises unto the living and true God. David had often been in the deep, the author of of the psalm. And as often as he pleaded with Jehovah, his God, in whose hands are all the deep places. God God knows, he sees, He, he, he knows what those depths are. He pleaded and he prayed, hoping ere long to receive an answer. It would be dreadful to look back on trouble and feel forced to own that we did not cry unto the Lord in it. But it is most comforting to know that whatever we did not do or could not do, yet we did pray, even in our worst times. He that prays in the depth will not sink out of its depth. He that cries out of the depth shall soon sing. In the heights, I was reading that even just last night, and I couldn't help but think of Ahmad Airberry. What did he cry? Was his was his prayer answered? In a moment, and I and I was thinking of Nehemiah before he presents to the king the cup. And he doesn't even say any words. He just says, I prayed to the king, and then I said to the king. And I wonder if in the last moments of Ahmad's life, if there was just a brief, oh, God. Well, Spurgeon, he that cries out in the depth shall soon sing in the heights. What do you mean, Charles? I think of a friend or a, an acquaintance I had an ugly cry last night, hoping I I wouldn't uh, do that uh, in front of you. Uh, Darren Patrick, he was uh, greatly influential in my life. He was one of the founders of Acts 29. Um, and He passed away this week, Um, and he was uh, a mentor and a friend to a lot of my close friends, my best friends, bar none, uh, are part of this organization, other pastors that have planted churches. And a required reading was from Darren Patrick, Struggled with depression. Where was his answer when he cried out? It's real uplifting in in these times that we're in, huh? Where was his answer? Going back to Psalm 130, he says, Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Out of the depths I cry. He says, Lord, hear my voice. He's going to say it three times here. This is the the repetition, the parallelism. That I'm I'm crying out to, Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. There's that word with, please withhold something. I need help. But it's amazing where the psalmist goes. And this is what Spurgeon meant, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at in this psalm. That even in my depth and my darkest hour and moment, in verse 3, he says, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? Right? Immediately here he's going to start talking about our sins, not our situations. I love that phrase, Lord, who could stand? Right? I mean, God, if you if you actually enacted on that list of sins, that record of sins that you keep, who, who could stand? Um, and I've probably shared this before. It's another pet peeve of mine. Here we go. Two pet peeves in one sermon. I sound angry. <laughs> um, but it's that song, I Can Only Imagine. Uh, and it's actually a beautiful song, I, and I really do like it. Uh, I can only imagine what it'll be like. Um, And the whole the whole thing, right? Will I will I stand in your presence? Will I will I dance in your presence to my knees? Will I fall? I'm telling you right now, if you stand in the presence of that God, you are going to fall on your face as dead. Who can stand? We just got done looking at the entire book of Job, right? As Job cries out, I want my day in court. And God shows up and says, "Okay, you got it. And Job's like, my bad. I made a mistake. Moving on here in verse 4, it says, But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can, with reverence, serve you. So even, according to the psalmist, what Spurgeon's getting at, another author's I'm going to be looking at, Luther, in my depth, there is forgiveness of sin, so that I can gladly serve that God, even though I'm still in my depth. He's not promising to get me out of that depth. Nowhere does he do this in the Bible. Again, moving on to verse five, it says, I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope, here it is. What's his word? What is the hope that I'm putting all my faith and trust in? When I'm in the depth, I put it in his word. Does his word say that when I'm, and in my hour of need, that I will be vindicated, that the angels will show up and save me? Does it say that he's going to bring me out of my depth? No, quite quite the contrary. He says, I'll meet you in your depth. I may not save you from circumstances, but I will forgive you of your sins. This is what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 9 and 10. He says that a, a messenger of Satan was sent to torment me a thorn in my flesh and says i prayed and i prayed and i prayed three times i prayed out of my depths out of my misery god remove this thing and does he no god doesn't remove it but what he does do is he shows up and he says i have grace that is all sufficient because your sins have been forgiven That's what you need to remember, Paul. He says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his word, I put my hope. Here he talks about waiting four different times. I wait for the Lord. And then here is exact parallelism. Says more than the watchman wait for the morning. More than the watchman wait for the morning. The job of a watchman is they would look out over a city. They had their walls at night. They would look and they would just watch for the enemy. And how long that night would be, right? Even for the citizens that are safely inside of the walls to 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 not hear a bell, not hear a cry for help or or the enemy is coming. But that was their job. And they would stay up all night. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where the where the night, usually it's when people are sick, the night is just miserable. And we just wait and long for that day, long for that sun to come up. I remember, um, this is kind of a silly story, but back in the day, I uh, was still at Hope and we lived in a neighborhood um, kind of in um, the, it's, it's, I don't know if it was technically uptown, but it was Franklin and Hennepin. If you're from Minneapolis, you'd know what I was talking about. And, and at about two o'clock, all the bars would would get out and on Friday nights. It was just pandemonium. Uh, and I remember one night, uh, being woken up at 2 a.m. by a guy standing in the middle of the street yelling. Um, and it is a busy street too. I'm not at 2 a.m. Uh, but he was standing there uh, without a shirt on and he was just screaming, "Will somebody, somebody want to share this case with me. Right. He had, a, and he had a case of beer in his hands. It was that kind of neighborhood. All right. Um, and, uh, I have my my old Jeep, you you know, my Jeep, and I'm not, not, I know it's been a long time since I've talked about my Jeep. So we show a little bit of grace here. Uh, But I had a a window that was broken. It wasn't, it was shattered on my own doing. I was trying to fix it and work on it. I made things worse like I normally do. And I didn't have a window up in this neighborhood. And so I, I sat there in my apartment all night right as people are drunk stumbling by walking by my jeep and i'm just and i was so tired but i was so worried that someone was going to i don't know what take something I, didn't, I don't know what i was worried about but i was just longing for that day it's long and i'm going to wait even in that silly story as long as it takes cuz i i care about my jeep I care about people. I care about whatever it is that I long to see God answer this. I'm going to wait, but my waiting is in the hope that he gives me in his word, that his grace is sufficient. And he explicitly says this in verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. That's his conclusion. I'm in my depths, but put your hope. I have hope. I'm longing. I'm waiting. And he himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Why does the psalmist conclude that from the depths that we need full redemption of sins, right? That's his conclusion. Why does he do that? I have another quote here. This, this is the longest one, okay? And I, and I tried to do my homework. I really did. I worked the, the Google machine and, and could not find where this was from. Um, it's from Spurgeon's book, The Treasuries of God, but he doesn't really give a good quote. He's quoting somebody else. It just says it's, it's from the study in the pulpit, 1877. I couldn't find anything online uh, where those. So I don't know who the author is um, here. This is what he says. Depths. Oh, into what depths men can sink, how far from happiness, glory, and goodness men can fall. There is the depth of poverty. A man can become utterly stripped of all earthly possessions and worldly friends. Sometimes we come upon a man still living, but in such abject circumstances that it strikes us as a marvel that a human being can sink lower than the beast of the field. Then there is the depth of sorrow. Billow after billow breaks over a man. Friend after friend departs over. Uh, lover and friend are put into darkness. All the fountains of his nature are broken up. He is like a waterlogged ship from top waves plunging down as if into the bottom of the sea. So often in such depths, sometimes like Jonah in a whale's belly, the monster carrying him down, 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 into the darkness. There are depths after depths of mental darkness, when the soul becomes more and more sorrowful down to that very depth, which is just this side of despair. Earth hollow, heaven empty, the air heavy, every form a deformity, all sounds discord, the past the gloom, the present a puzzle, and the future a horror. One more step down, and the man will stand in the chamber of despair, the floor of which is blistering hot while the air is biting cold as the polar atmosphere. To what depths the spirit of a man may fall. But the most horrible depth into which a man's soul can descend is sin. I hate sin. I'm so sick of it. Sometimes we begin on Gradual slopes and then slide so swiftly that we soon reach great depths, depths in which there are horrors that are neither in poverty, nor sorrow, nor mental depression. It is sin. It is an outrage against God and ourselves. We feel that there is no bottom. Each opening depth reveals a greater deep. This really is the bottomless pit with an everlasting accumulations of speed and perpetual lacerations as we descend. Oh, depths below depths. Oh, falls from light to gloom, from gloom to darkness. Oh, the hell of sin. What can we do? We can simply cry. 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 But let us cry to God unless injurious are other cries. They are mere expressions of impotency or protest against imaginary fate. But the cry of the Spirit to the Most High is a true cry. Out of the depths of all poverty, all sorrow, all mental depression, all sin, cry unto God. And this is where it turns the joy. This is where, from the depths, we can say we have forgiveness from all of our sins. It's what my boy Martin Luther calls redemption plenteously. Isn't that awesome? Redemption plenteously. Even in my depths and my darkness, And Luther struggled with immense depression, immense torment and satanic attacks. The fact that he can say he will redeem me from all of my sins, this is redemption, plenteously, how can he do that? I know I've shared this before, I I think, and I don't know if I've done it from the pulpit, but I've used this analogy several times. um, That that simply the the aspect of, um, of William Shakespeare, that he... He, every time we would write a, a play, he, there would be five acts. And, and I, I know I've shared this before, but if you haven't heard this, uh, bear with me. And so there are, there are five acts. And, and if we take away one of those acts, right, we, we would maybe be left or we don't know how the book ends or the story ends. Right. That if we gave an actor all of all of, you know, the, the, the manuscript and said, OK, I'm not going to give you act four. You have one, two and three and five. But I want you to come up with what you, your character would say in act four. And that's where we are that we don't know exactly everything that's going to happen. But what I do know is I know how it ends. I know in the end Hamlet dies. Okay, how does he get there? How do we get there? How do we get to God's going to make all things new? How do we get to redemption plenteously? Well, we can do that because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so so I want to read Psalm 130, remix, okay, in light of Christ, and this is, again, the words of Luther as he pens, repens the words of Psalm 130 and does it in a way that says we have been redeemed. We've been set free from all our sin and all of our sorrow. He says this, from the depths of, depths of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, hear my, turn, Lord, turn your gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. If thou iniquities dost mark our secret sins and misdeeds dark o oh, who shall stand before thee to wash away the crimson stain grace grace alone availeth our works alas are all in vain and much the best life faileth no one can glory in thy sight all must alike confess thy might and live alone by mercy therefore because that's my state. I am in my depths of, of woe. Therefore, my trust is in the Lord and not in my own no Merit. On him, my soul shall rest. His word upholds my fainting spirit. His promise, mercy is my fort. It is my bulwark never failing, to quote his other hymn. My comfort and my sweet support, I will wait for it with patience. I need God to show up with his word. What though I wait the live long night, though I wait life long? I'm reminded of when we studied 1 Peter. And he says that we're going to suffer for a little while. And by that, he doesn't mean a small amount of time before Christ is revealed and reveals himself in glory and makes all things new. That little while could be our entire lives. But it seems like a little while. God makes all things new, what though I wait the live long night, the lifelong night until the dawn appeareth, my heart still trusteth in his might. It doubteth not nor feareth. It's kind of a weird translation from German to English. And so when the poetry didn't quite line up, they just said add an if to it. Um, and it should work, appeareth, trusteth, doubteth, feareth, appeareth. It doubteth not nor feareth. Do thus so, ye of Israel seed, ye of the Spirit born indeed, that's us, church, and wait till God appeareth. Though great our sins and sore our woes, his grace much more aboundeth. His helping love no limit knows, our utmost need it soundeth, our shepherd, the the door, the way, the truth, and the life, the bread of life. Our shepherd, good and true is he, who will at last his Israel free, that's us, church, from all our sin and sorrow, from all of my sin and sorrow. Though I wait the life-long night, you will free me from all my sin and my sorrow when everything sad becomes untrue. Maranatha, Maranatha is a Hebrew word. It's also where I went to college. It simply means, come Lord Jesus, come. Maranatha. In a moment, we're going to have communion and we're going to sing this. We're going to sing this hymn. But before I get there, I want to read a quote. It's the last one. It's the last one, and then I promise. And then we're going to have communion. Then we're going to sing this hymn. But I want I want to I want to just give you some words of how we should be singing this Psalm 130, right? Because it sounds, man, this is heavy. It kind of changed, you kind of ruin Psalm 130. No, it shouldn't. This should be glorious. And we've been freed from all of our sins and our sorrow when He makes things new. And I'm, I'm quoting here a guy named Solomon Gessner. He was actually um, a student of Luther in in Wittenberg, Germany. And, and it's, it sounds like Luther wrote this, but he, but he didn't. And so I'm, he's going to talk and he's going to be very harsh towards popedom and the papist. I'm not bashing Catholicism here. They don't do this anymore. Okay, this was during the Reformation. Reformation. But I want to read what he says about this psalm and how to sing it. Of the psalms, which are called the penitential, this is the chiefest. But as it is the most excellent, so it has been perverted to the most disgraceful abuse, abuse in popedom, that it should be mumbled in the lowest voice by slow bellies, in the sepulchral vigils for their liberation of souls from purgatory, as if David were treat, treating of the dead, when he has not even spoken a word about them, but says that he himself, a living man, was called upon God, and exhorts the Israelites, living individuals also to do the same. Believing the buffooneries of the papists, we will rather consider that buffooneries has got to be one of the greatest insults you could say in one word. Believing the buffooneries of the papists, we will rather consider the true meaning and use of this psalm. It contains the most ardent prayer of a man grievously distressed by a sense of the divine anger against him, against sin, excuse me, the divine anger against sin, by earnest turning to God And patience, he is seeking the forgiveness of his sins. That's what the song is about. So in gospel application, are you in the depths? And I know there are people that I can see. I can see names on here. You are in the depth. Cry out to God, wait that live long night until the dawn appeareth. But you, church, you, individual, God sent his son to die for your sins so that we can be set free from sin. Redemption is here. That we are on this side of the cross looking back and we can say the dawn has come to the mercy and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Will you pray with me? And then we will go into a time of communion. Heavenly Father, I thank you for our time and the word this morning. It was not what I planned. It wasn't what I wanted. I thought thought I was going to be happy and cheerful. and (laughs) And it's hard. And yet, you have delivered us from sin. You've delivered us. And even in the midst of suffering, even if it takes my life, the dawn will appear. I will see my Savior face to face, the one who died for my sins, the one who knows my sorrows. And he will, in a moment, make everything sad come untrue. Maranatha. Amen.